We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From Variety, celebrating 115 years covering the business of entertainment, this is the Award Circuit Podcast. Lovecraft Country star Journey Smollett is still reflecting on the experience of stepping into such a unique role and story. I just remember being so blown away by the audacity to tell such a classic story. It's a very classical design, you know? You have these heroes who go on a quest to restore order in their land. Heroes have to fight monsters and dragons, etc., right, in order to restore balance. However, when you center a very classical story like that, but center it with Black voices, inevitably it flips it on its head. Because what order are they restoring? Where was there ever order for these, these Black Americans, right? I'm Michael Schneider, and on this edition of the Variety Awards Circuit Podcast, we talk to Journey Smollett, the star of HBO's Lovecraft Country, about immersing herself into the story of Jim Crow-era America, and how Lovecraft Country uses horror as a lens to depict the real-life horror of that time for Black Americans. Later on, we speak with In and of Itself star Derek Delgadio about turning his awe-inspiring and mysterious stage show into a TV special directed by Frank Oz. But first... On the Variety Awards Circuit Roundtable, we get into the Emmy comedy race. It's all next on this edition of Variety's Awards Circuit Podcast. Stay close. Hey everyone, I'm Michael Schneider and welcome back to the Roundtable. It's the thing you've been looking forward to the most all week long. And of course, as always, we've got Danielle Terciano. Danielle, welcome. That was a very foreboding intro. I hope this is not the thing that people have been looking most forward to all week. It's summer. Get outside. They wait till Thursday. They're like, what what does the gang have to say this week? Uh, First off, how is Madison? He's better. I mean, well, this will be out on Thursday. Let's hope he's still better. He's better as of today. Uh, For those of you who follow me on Instagram, my dog is geriatric and has a million things wrong with them. Him. Um, But he's okay. He is eating only chicken. He's on a bunch of new medications, and he has not pooped since he came home from the hospital. So having a real fun time over here. <laughs> but he's he's eating more healthy these days, healthier than you. So Very true. He still <laughs> refuses to touch vegetables, and he, he has kidney disease now, and he needs to be on uh, low-protein, low-phosphorus for his kidneys, low-carb, low-fat, high-fiber for his diabetes. So you try finding some combination of food that 
works for both of those things? And the answer is I have to start cooking him fresh meals. And um, I'm learning to cook for a Shih Tzu. <laughs> That's so great. That's so great. That's so great. <laughs> Whatever it takes, Danielle. Whatever, Whatever it, it takes. takes. <laughs> and of course, that's the voice of Jazz Tanke, who's doing all right. Hello. Yes, I'm rocking and rolling. What people can't see is that I have uh, some concoction on my neck, but all is good. Yeah. Stitches, I find not injured. Yeah. It's the hardest working woman in show business. She has a procedure. She does a podcast. She's working hurt. Big, big old bandage, but you're, you're, you're still here. So you're a trooper jazz and joining us in the clubhouse this week, the one and only critic, uh, du jour, du jour, I guess. Extraordinary. <laughs> Dan Daddario. Dan. Hey, Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks for for visiting us. And um, yeah, as as uh, voting continues right now during the nomination phase of the Emmys, thought we would have a, a real life critic on this week to sort of help folks, perhaps who are still on the fence, who still haven't quite decided uh, which shows to pick as they choose their nominees. So. Dan, I know uh, you and, and Caroline actually uh, wrote a piece sort of going over some of your wish lists, uh, so some of the, the shows that you hope voters consider as, as they make their picks. But why don't you kind of share with us some, some of your thoughts, some of your maybe uh, uh, bubbling under picks that you hope people pay attention to? So it's likely, I think, that Girls 5 Eva will get at least a little attention. Um, but I hope within the extended universe of shows that are one or two degrees of uh, separation removed from Tina Fey. I hope that a little attention is paid to Saved by the Bell. This is like my hot take, is that (laughs) that is actually the great comedy to emerge out of that kind of like joke-dense Tina Fey world this past year. I also, I do hope that Girls 5 ever gets some love. And lastly, I'm hoping that people who are checking off Gene Smart's name also consider Hannah Einbinder, also from Hacks. Yes, yes, you you did your tribute to Ava, the unsung hero of, of Hacks. The unsung co-hero. They carry the show together. You can't have one without the other. Yeah. No, it, it's a fun supporting cast. I, I mean, don't uh, you know, d- discount any of them, uh, including, of course, Caitlin Olson, who's not on nearly enough. Uh, but when she is on, of course, just, you know, is is so fantastic as sort of the spoiled brat of a daughter. Of uh, She is fantastic. And her performing, um, I almost shouldn't spoil it, her performing on the piano uh, <laughs> is one of the absolute great laugh out loud uh, gags of the season. Yeah, yeah. By the way, that's one of the few songs I also can play on the piano, (laughs) but that's because I never took any lessons and just taught it myself. Very nice. But that's that's fun. Well, you know, with uh, eight nominees, as Danielle and I confirmed... (laughs) I just want to say, I think this is the year where you don't do that. Just for the record, like, I know that they have this base rule... And yes, you know, it, there was a question in at least my mind at the start of this, if they would keep that base rule that they started last year, that drama and comedy would definitely have eight nominees, no matter how many submissions. But comedy is down to 68 shows submitting. I don't think you need to have eight. I'm just going to say it. I think it's OK to narrow the pool a little bit. Well, you know, I've been the proponent for forever of just like make them 10 in both. Um, 
I mean, on some years, I think sure. But this year, I'm just like, it's, it's, it feels like a very thin pool for comedy this year. So I just, that sounds so scary. If you did 10, maybe you would get Saved by the Bell in the mix. Maybe you would get a few unconventional surprise twists, and it would make it a little more fun, at least. Um, Cobra Kai would get in. Cobra Kai would get get in in anyway. I (laughs) think given the, the championing a lot of people have done here, I think it might get it anyway. Yeah, yeah. I think you can blame a, a chunk of the variety staff, myself included, if if that happens. <laughs> but I don't know. I mean, that that obviously, Jazz, that was the debate on the film side uh, leading up to the ill-fated uh, uh, popular Oscar that was complete, like quickly uh, scrapped. But I mean, what do you think? If, if we went to 10, maybe we'd get a, f- a few of those crowd pleasers that are not necessarily critics pleasers, but nonetheless would, would get people more interested. I think with Danielle, I'm just with Danielle. We don't need to go to 10, not this year. Maybe next year, but, you know, eight is too much. But 10 would just give, yeah, like Saved by the Bell. Maybe Mythic Quest would get in on that 10. Um, And these are good shows. I'm not saying that they're not good shows, but I don't necessarily have the faith in the voters of picking these shows in that scenario. And I also don't know... I don't know if it feels like a real win if you're being picked because there's a lot of big things sitting out. It's a participation trophy at that point. It's like a People's Choice Award. No disrespect to the People's Choice Awards, but like, that's its own thing. (laughs) That's its own thing. (laughs) You know what I mean? The people vote on that. The people (laughs) vote on that, and that's great. Like, this is something else. And I'm like, I want want them, I would want a show like Mythic Quest to get in no matter what it's up against, I would feel like if it got in this year, is it only getting in because some of the big contenders are out? And that's like a, uh, that's just to me, I'm very unfortunate. Like, just it, this show's good because it's good, not because you know. Yeah, I can't even think of some of the other big nominees that are no longer. But like, you know, Shit's Creek last year sweats, so Shit's Creek is gone. But last year was a much more competitive year and a show like What We Do in the Shadows still snuck in. So I just think like it's a different world than it used to be in terms of their willingness to uh, go in kind of strange directions. And so we can't necessarily say there's an asterisk on anything that happens this year, because if What We Do in the Shadows could happen last year to me, that means Mm. that it's a much more wide open world. I mean, that's just one example that I'm kind of cherry picking, but it, it did really take me aback last, uh, last summer. And this summer, I think, you know, yes, there are fewer nominees, but also I think we've seen their taste get a little bit more interesting than the era of, you know, nothing against this wonderful show, but the era of modern family dominance, like uh, it's, it's gotten a little bit weirder. I, I mean, I think you're just more optimistic than I am. I, I'm just that a cynical person that is like, <laughs> you guys don't. What's happening? Anyway. I, the critic, get to drop, get to parachute in and say, oh, interesting. Whereas you're you're in the muck. In the no, but it's, I think it's interesting that you as the critic are the optimist compared to me. That's what I think is interesting. Because, you <laughs> know, you true. have different takes on a lot of shows than I do. So That's I don't true. Know. I think what's interesting, though, is like for the longest time, it was like Ted Lasso is going to win right? Like Ted Lasso is number one. And then we had the flight attendant and now we have hacks, which kind of came out of nowhere and has this 
huge, like everybody's talking about hacks. So it's going to, it's definitely going to be an interesting, those three are definitely, I think, going to get in. And then the rest is, who knows what Emmy voters are going to throw in this year. Like what's this year's, like what we do in the shadows for Emmy voters. Emily in Paris. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know, I was just thinking that, Mike, I swear, like, that could come out of I think the reaction to the HFPA honoring Emily in Paris so broadly uh, might put the fear into some people. But yeah. Especially over some of these other shows that we've just talked about. Well, right. Like, you yeah, know, yeah. I mean, I think that's the other thing is if you've seen in a, in a field of eight, if you've seen shows like Girls 5 Eva, Saved by the Bell, Mythic Quest, like these theoretically are, should be top of your list. They're just well-crafted all around. I, I think the the answer to that, though, the the what we do in the shadow surprise this year would be Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist. Like if that still got a nomination, even though it's now canceled and not living on, I think there's still a possibility in a world of eight nominations that uh, enough people might use that as their eighth almost protest vote. Like, let's get Zoe's in there just to sort of stick it to the the folks who canceled that show. Um, that could be pretty interesting to, to see if that happens. And it's possible. But I mean, looking at the comedy race, so, you know, it's still Ted Lasso, though, right? I mean, ha- Hacks and Flight Attendant are fantastic and, and are definite contenders. And by the way, shout out to HBO Max. I mean, not a bad like early start for, for HBO Max to have two of the biggest comedy contenders, uh, you know, in, in the race this year. Um, great, great start for them. Uh, so you've got that. You've got Kaminsky Method still in the mix. You've got Pen15 in the mix. Uh, you've got Blackish, um, which, you know, has still one more season to go, but that's sort of riding the end of its, uh, error wave, just like Kaminsky is as well. Um, Girls 5 Eva, like you mentioned. And then there's the interesting case of Master of None, which, I, I mean, real reach to call it a comedy this year. But given, you know, the controversial uh, auspices. What what do we think the chances are there? You know, it's, I don't know. It's because the thing is I've heard people who have watched it and said, I don't know what this show is. It's not a comedy, but I really like it. And so, but it's going in the comedy category. So if you, if you say that, do you vote for it? Even though you're acknowledging that it's not really of the genre, it's submitting it. You know, more so, I think, than the Aziz factor and, and the controversy around it. Because I do think that a lot of people have let that go. Um, and I do think, you know, just looking at Naomi Aki coming in and her performance was so strong, it, it drew so much attention to that storyline and the fact that you never see this on television. Um, but it's that, like, is this still a comedy question? You know, I mean, years ago when Orange is the New Black shameless jumped categories it's like should they have jumped categories would they have had a better shot i don't know and would the academy have even let them or you know there, there's a chance they would have said eh, you know you can't start like giving all these exceptions of, of having shows move back and forth it's it's still you know a, a short form show uh 
And like the episodes were about half an hour, right? There were a couple out? that were like double episodes, but I don't know if they were packaged two back. I watched it all in a binge. So to me, it might've been two back to back rather than one long one, but I could have sworn some of them were, were an hour. My thing is that are enough, like, is there enough people talking about this show? Right? Like, I think more people are definitely talking about Zoe's and Girls 5 Ever, even Mythic Quest, and strangely, Dickinson. Like, people are discovering Dickinson, which is so interesting. So, like, I feel that that could put Master of None at risk of dropping out in favor of one of those shows. And I could be wrong, but I don't think Netflix has done any, like, events for Master of did they? They they did a, a virtual conversation. Um, I cannot remember who moderated it, but it was it was like a one on one Aziz and somebody, and it was a big name, and it's just escaping me at the moment. Um, and then they've done you know some some other smaller you know FYC ads and and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, sort of uh, targeted things. Jazz, I just wanted to say I really agree with something you said, which is that. Um, I think the award success, including at the Emmys of those first two seasons, was in part owed to the fact that it was such a media sensation. It was so talked about. It was so written about. And it felt like a big event that voters wanted to kind of be a part of. I think if we kind of leave aside the intrinsic quality of the show, it just felt as though this third season didn't get that level of attention, both because it's a show in its third season that came out in very busy times, and because maybe it's a little bit tougher to reckon with, uh, a little bit less easy for media outlets to be super excited about. And it just didn't feel like there was that kind of buy-in and that level of buzz and excitement. So you kind of have to really affirmatively vote, choose to vote for Master of None because it's not top of mind. So I, I would not be surprised if these other shows that are getting more attention get in. Also, it's just like a lot of shows kind of get re-upped season after season. The fact that Master of None basically rebooted and became a new show built around the Lena Waithe character means that you're voting for a new show that even presented itself with a new title on screen. Master of None presents Moments in Love. Yeah, it was the Frasier of uh, Master of None. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, a, a, a much, uh, much more contemplative version of Frasier, exactly. <laughs> you know, there, there are like quite a few shows that are sort of bubbling under that, you know, aren't big enough to, to get nominations, but nonetheless, you know, Made for Love, um, Love, Victor, only shows with love in the title, apparently. Um <laughs> Uh, Dickinson, like you mentioned, uh, uh, Shrill, I suppose. Um, and then there's the, the NBC comedies that we haven't talked about yet. There's Keenan, um, and Mr. Mayor, uh, Young Rock, I suppose too. Uh, Keenan probably of those three, just because of the, you know, there, there is such, again, we've, we've supported the Keenan uh, train quite a bit. Um, so, so I think there's. Uh, you know, definitely shot for Keenan in, in the acting category. Um, you know, he's a front runner. Uh, but I wouldn't be shocked if if Keenan sort of snuck in there. If if you know, 
there was a block vote of of people still supporting broadcast, perhaps uh, based on the strength of his name alone. Uh, of all broadcast comedies, Blackish, of course, has the best shot of of getting a nomination. But I think Keenan's sort of behind there. Um, I had Zoe's. I sometimes forget that Zoe's is a broadcast show, and apparently NBC did too. Hey, Dad. <laughs> too soon. <laughs> So sad. Sometimes I just look at the FYC gifts that they send right before cancellation, and I'm just like, man, you guys could have waited and saved some money. (laughs) One way that NBC, I do think, is going to clean up, even if its sitcom slate gets more or less ignored, is this absence of real competition suggests to me we'll be seeing, you know, three, four, five uh, nominees from SNL in both supporting yeah. categories. It just seems like the gates are really open. I mean, and they have been, that's a trend over the last few years, but I just think like and anyone who had a moment, certainly in guest as well, anyone who had a moment, I think is, you know, and people have said that this, that the moment in the finale with Cecily Strong as Janine Pirro was really meant as this kind of potentially beautiful send off to her. It's could be a big moment for her, but I think she'll also be facing in-category competition from in the absence of competition from other shows, pretty much everyone else on SNL. Although I just want to circle back to the Saved by the Bell of it, because I want nothing <laughs> else than for Mark Paul Gossler to get a guest actor nomination for Saved by the Bell now, you know, 30 years after he yeah. never got a claim as the lead on the original <laughs> version. Like, I want nothing else than that. Like, just give me that. That feels, am I crazy? That feels gettable. Honoring the young actors, I'd be really surprised. I feel like there was such enthusiasm around the reboot of it all. I guess we'll see how they campaign it, if at all. Yeah, I mean, they did They did the bus. Um, I mean, it wasn't as big as, like, the Girls 5 Eva bus with the karaoke, but they've had buses go around with, like, the wraps on them and stuff. And um, I don't know. It's just... I don't know if it feels gettable only because, of, as you just said, like it's it's going to be SNL dominating that. Like, just look at all of the Chris Rock, Dave Chappelle, Reggae John Page, like all of these people that came through SNL this year, and you know they were one-off episodes, but that doesn't that's what guest is. Like that, that yeah. always tends to dominate. Like it doesn't, yeah. and they they you know because it's sketch, they show off a little bit more range than somebody might who comes in as a guest on one sitcom episode, for example. Um, so I get it. I'm not saying they shouldn't get all of those nominations, but I'd, I'd like to see a little diversity. I agree. Yeah, that that's one where, you know, they, they may have to start thinking, like, is there a way to change this? Because it is, a guest is going to be dominated this year by, by SNL. Maybe that's not a bad thing. Uh, I don't know. But maybe you do a different category for multiple guest appearances, or I don't know. Always trying to expand the show, Mike. The new <laughs> category, there's Mike. <laughs> hey, we, we just saved the documentary world last week, so. <laughs> that was crazy. Just, you know, I mean, it was great timing because you had put out your column ahead of that, so we didn't have to change anything. Right. But then, but then great timing to be like, yeah, we realized this is controversial. And, you know, if you're an Oscar nominee, that's. That's good enough. You know, it's, it's not nothing. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, it's, it's you got to pick it. You can't double dip. I'm sorry. If you're going <laughs> to, like, you know, if, if, if you weren't nominated for an Oscar and then, you, you, you know, you take your lumps and then you try to submit for an Emmy, that's sorry. You, you already said you were a movie. You already said you were a film. So nice. that's, that's on you. They tried doing that with song. Like, 
they try for Oscar. If that doesn't work, then they're going to try for Emmy and then they're going to move on to Grammy. It's like, stop, people. Just no. Someday yeah. somebody will EGOT with the same exact thing. <laughs> exactly. So, Dan, um, is there anything that you have watched recently? Um, so separate from from Emmys, but just in general that uh, uh, has, that you could recommend to the listeners or to us that uh, you particularly are passionate about? Yeah. So um, for a while, I was in a bit of a holding pattern. And my answer to this question was not very illuminating because it was Mayor of Easttown for a while, which everyone in the world watched and I was a big fan of like everyone in the world. But there's a new show coming on HBO that I'm very happy to say uh, filled kind of a hole in my heart. I was a big fan of Mike White's series Enlightened, starring Laura Dern, and he's back with a series he wrote and directed, a limited series called The White Lotus. And it has an ensemble cast, including um, Jennifer Coolidge, uh, Jake Lacey, who's familiar from Girls, among a million other things, Alexandra Daddario, to whom I am not related. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I, you know, I've got to promote, like, my cousin I didn't know I had, Alexandra Daddario, and they are all staying at a luxury hotel in Hawaii um, where the manager is Murray Bartlett from Looking and the spa manager is Natasha Rothwell. And... It's a shaggy story. It's not as perfectly constructed as, to me, um, Enlightened was. But it really kind of gets inside character in a way that Mike White does so well. It looks it looks like, and this makes it sound like homework privilege, but in a way that is so penetrating, so full of humor, so full of life. Um, you know, it's not going to be as big and as virtual water coolery as um Mary Town was but I heartily recommend it for anyone who's looking for something a little cerebral a little chewy and absolutely beautiful to look at the white lotus shaggy and chewy <laughs> <laughs> those are those are great critical words those are great critic words uh, you know you have to develop you know a, a rich vocabulary of metaphors because you can't just keep saying the same thing when you file as much as Caroline and I do. <laughs> you can't keep calling it a masterpiece. So exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You can't just keep saying, Oh, really good. I think that's a perfect spot to end it now. I don't think we can uh, uh, improve on that. So thanks Dan for stopping by. Hey, thanks. It was a real pleasure. Absolutely. And, and Daniel and jazz, we'll, we'll see you next week. It's Variety's Award Circuit Podcast. I'm Michael Schneider. Based on Matt Ruff's 2016 novel of the same name and created and executive produced by Misha Green, HBO's Lovecraft Country takes place in the 1950s and begins with Journey Smollett as Letty, accompanying her friend Atticus, played by Jonathan Majors, as he sets out in search of his father. While on that road trip, they encounter racism from a local police sheriff and the laws of the sundown town through which they are passing. But they also have a supernatural experience when they are attacked by creatures. 
From there, things only get more complicated as Letty buys a house in an all-white community and has to face additional hatred from her new neighbors, in addition to vanquishing the spirit of a scientist who performed experiments on black patients in the house. Although there are bright spots as she and Atticus embark on a love story and conceive a child, there is additional trauma as they attend Emmett Till's funeral, travel back in time to 1921, and Letty fights to try and save Atticus. Please, I'm running out of time. Now, we need the book of names to help save a little girl named Diana, your great-grandson's cousin. She's been cursed. And we need it to help protect him, too, from Christina Braithwaite. And I know all this sounds crazy, but I can prove it. You have a family birthmark, yes? Atticus saw it in a picture of your cousin that looks a little something like this. Your son, you came to the past for the book. We die here. Listen to me. Adora escapes with you, cousin Ethel. She grows up, she marries Montrose Freeman together. They have a beautiful baby boy. We call him Tick because Atticus is really a mouthful. And I fell in love with him. I, I am in love with him. I don't want him to not exist. But we can't change any of it. Variety's Danielle Terciano caught up with Smollett to discuss the historical context of her character, her personal connection to her character, and whether there will be a season two. They began by discussing how she became attached to the project. I first read the pilot for Lovecraft Country almost four years ago. It was, a, Misha had gone and locked herself in her apartment um, and three weeks later had the first draft of the pilot which is pretty incredible because when I think back to that first draft, it's essentially what we shot. Mm. Um, it was a little longer. Um, so she cut off some of the, the fat, you know, um, and made it a little leaner, but it, it was essentially the, the story that we ended up telling. And I, I just remember being so blown away by the audacity to tell such a classic story. It's a very classical design. You know, you have these heroes who go on a quest to restore order in their land. The heroes have to fight monsters and dragons, etc., right, in order to restore balance. Mm -hmm. However, when you center a, a, a very classical story like that, but center it with Black voices, inevitably, it flips it on its head. Right. Because what order are they restoring? Where was there ever order right. for these, these Black Americans, right? For Letty, uh, a woman who lives at the intersection of multiple identities in the 1950s Jim Crow America, what does order actually mean? What does peace actually mean? And can you restore something that was never there or do you have to tear the whole thing down and start all over again? Right. Um, and so when I think back to my impression of Letty, when I first read the script, I was just so, I was just so drawn to her and curious and felt connected to her on a level that is so rare. Um, unfortunately, um, when you read scripts, you, you're hungry to find those characters. What I, one of the things I was struck by was just how in the very first scene, you learn so much about this woman. I mean, she's a bit of a tornado. I mean, she comes <laughs> and, you know, you learn that she loves her sister. They've got a bond. But for some reason, she's a bit of a drifter. And she 
habitually abandons her, her family um, and is, is broke, you know, can't even afford to buy stockings, but has dreams of <laughs> buying a house and moving into an all white neighborhood and pioneering and what that meant in the night in Chicago. Um, you learn that she didn't go to her mother's funeral, which was such a nugget for me. I was so curious because there's, I have a very close family member and that happened where they decided to not go to their mother's funeral. And mm-hmm. oh, I'm always fascinated by how we as human beings deal with grief. Yeah. How we deal with grief um, when we grieve those that we were estranged from, you know, um, which is something I can relate to with my dad. My dad, I didn't speak to my dad from the time I was 12 until I was 26, except for a handful of times. And once we were reunited, he passed away two years later. And so I could so relate to Letty's desire to heal that mother-daughter split. Mm-hmm. You never really get to heal once they pass away. Or do you heal it? Do you find other ways to try to heal it? Do you repeat certain patterns in an effort to heal it? So there was just, you know, all these things in Letty that I was just desperate to explore. We're very selfish and cathartic. <laughs> Well, it's so interesting to hear you talk about like that li- that little nuance piece of of detail about the character because yes, that says so much about her relationships with her family and who she is and what she's going through. But that's one small piece, and there are all these things to come in this in this series that I imagine you didn't necessarily know right at the start in terms of actually depicting Emma Till's funeral and going back in time and just the the great physical scope of the show and and you know in addition to the great emotional scope of the show so when you started to learn those those pieces how does that change who you thought you were going to be playing well I don't know that it changes it it expands it it builds upon what I thought I was taking on I I knew I was taking on a woman who had all these contrasting ideas inside of her had this real inner struggle I I she had the same eyes that I instinctively um thought she had when mm-hmm. I read the script my first impression of her okay um, didn't change it it grew and expanded after because after I read the script I didn't get offered the script by Nisha she just let me read it as a friend and so I went back and read the book, you know, and, and tried to prepare for the moment that I knew I'd have to inevitably campaign for the, for the role. Okay. Um, and so some of those, some of those themes that we explore in the show with Letty are touched upon in the book, but Misha absolutely. Yeah. Expanded. And expanded upon it. Um, so yeah, it, it's not really that it changed. It's, it's just that when you look at the, if you take in, I mean, work like this for for a project, a character that you're building like this, it really requires that you understand the historical context, right? You know, to which your characters are in. Um, so while I didn't know Emmett Till's funeral was coming, I understood that 1955, August, yeah, August 28th, or sometime in August, um, was when there was this collective mourning, this collective grief. I knew that prior to Rosa Parks in December of 1955, um, 
you know, sparking the bus boycott, that there were all these other little Hmm. protests that didn't get the acclaim that a Rosa Parks did, but that the 1955, there was a bubbling energy in black folks, in black women. Right. I, I, I studied the Ella Bakers of the world. I studied um, the poetry of a Gwendolyn Brooks to, to understand how they saw the world. It's funny because that's one of the things Alfred Woodard talks a lot about. She calls it. You got to find the eyes of the mm. character. And it's so true. You have to see how, you have to understand how the character sees the world. Mm-hmm. And, and part of it is their family structure. And so I understood that. But then you also got to understand the historical context right. of what of all those other elements that inform how how her eyes are formed. And part of that, I imagine, too, is the relationship with Atticus, because you know I'm not gonna I'm not gonna put pressure on you to repeat this, but Jonathan spoke with us recently, and he had said that like forming that love relationship and playing that love story was one of the things that gave him the most joy in the show because. A, the lightness that comes with it, but also, you know, just that kind of character exploration and the things that it can teach you about your character. Um, I'm not, I, you know, I don't necessarily mean to put you on the spot and be like, was that your favorite too? But I am curious how you, uh, you know, approached the, the lightness that can come with a love story, even on the very heavy darkness backdrop of both these historical horrors and these supernatural horrors. Well, I have to say I was incredibly spoiled because I had a partner in Jonathan Majors, right? Like how, how lucky are you to be able to um, have, have someone as gifted as him that you can just stare at? And, and, and he has his own eyes, right? That he has so yep. found. Um, and so, yeah, absolutely. I think how Letty relates to Atticus informs so much about her character. I, I mean, I'm a big believer that true characters revealed when you're forced to make a choice under pressure, right? And so if you just look at the choices that Letty makes, when it comes to how she approaches Atticus, it informed so much that I was actually already building upon okay. um, and, and, and exploring the real abandonment issues that she has taken on from her mother. Mm-hmm. And folks who have abandonment issues they, you know, we, yeah. <laughs> I got them too. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, me too. I mean, it's just part of human nature now, you know, the world we live in. Right, right. And then building these characters, part of finding the humanity in them. And so with Letty, while she is trying to heal the mother-daughter split, and she habitually abandons those in her life with Atticus, they have a tr- they have a bond that sparks this real attachment to him that she cannot let go of, and even though he kind of pushes her away, she cannot let go of of the connection and the attachment she has to him, and, and takes on a very um, it takes on a very it's interesting. I'm, I'm also <laughs> so I'm so into like uh, you know in building my characters, I I tend to go to um, like therapy books and and going to understand relationship dynamics. And so I look at Letty, I'm like, oh, it's interesting because with Atticus, she's got more of an anxious attachment pattern. Okay. (laughs) You know, like she's, she, she won't let go even, you know, and, and there's anxiety around it. And, um, 
And, and so anyways, yeah, I think it was an incredibly beautiful experience to explore the dynamics of these two people who are falling in love in the midst of all their, in the midst of their world being turned upside down. Learning that there is a power beyond what you were aware of, what does that do to you? When you realize you are engaged in a spiritual warfare, right? What does that do to you? So they're, they're navigating through that reality, new reality. Right. James Baldwin asks, he says, what is reality, right? You know, um, so the truth has, has been, they learned that the truth has been distorted their entire life. They didn't know the truth. And, and it's so beautiful to watch them struggle with that while actually struggling with the blossoming love. It's a, mm-hmm. a very unconventional love story, but it was, it was so awesome to be able to explore it with Jonathan. And you, I mean, you touched on this already in, in the vein of genre programming that, you know, there's not a lot, or historically there haven't been a lot of black characters centered there. I would argue that, you know, even for love stories, Sometimes there's not a lot of black characters there. I mean, is and these are things that we talk about, you know, when we see the shows and they become such a part of our critical discourse. But realistically, are these things that you can think about while you're working or does that larger context obscure what you need to do to play these scenes? You know, it's interesting because when I read the pilot, um, you become absolutely aware of how disruptive, I became absolutely just aware of how disruptive um, Lovecraft Country had the potential to be. Mm-hmm. Um, that it was providing a counter narrative for this dominant narrative, right? Um, and that it was subverting stereotypes and and normalizing our stories. You, you absolutely are aware of that because yeah. Black artists, you never read, you never right. get scripts like this right um but once you're doing the work you're in the work you're in the weed you're in the mud you're not you're not you can't think about how it's perceived Uh, it's death it is death if you think about oh this scene right here (laughs) you know like there was there would be no way of me I had no idea how people would respond to Letty and I mean and that's the beautiful fear Mm-hmm. Right, embrace that you just dive head head in. You know, you remember when I worked with Denzel Washington when he directed me in a film called Great Debaters, and mm-hmm. one thing all the time was you got to be willing to fail big. Okay. If you are afraid of failure, you'll never try. And so that's how I've tried. And look, I've failed a bunch of times. Okay, but I I don't at all shooting Lovecraft Country, there'd be no way of knowing if we were going to just fail on our asses or if folks would receive it in the, in the overwhelmingly positive way. Mm-hmm. You just, yeah, you can't think about that stuff. But then you were very engaged when it was airing, like with your audience on social media, you were always tweeting with them. You're always like resharing their posts. So like, you're obviously cognizant of what people are saying and, and, what, but what inspires that? Like once the work is done, I mean, what inspired you to be so engaged with those conversations after, after the fact, especially not knowing, as you just said, how they would react. Like if they had reacted negatively, would you not have? It's interesting. That's a, that's, that's a a good point you make. You know, I don't read reviews. I, um, 
It's funny because even with Lovecraft, I heard that it got great reviews. It did, yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we're still talking about it. Yeah. Uh, people in my life for sure would send me blurbs like, my attorney, Nina Shaw, I love her. She's my queen, right? You know, on the first day the reviews came out, she like sent me a blurb and I was like, I can't read it. But <laughs> okay, I'll read this one, this one little blurb. And she was like, oh, attorney, it's just a love letter. You know, so, and so I think the habit of live tweeting or engaging with folks on social media began with underground with me. Um, yeah. And you know, it's interesting. It's it's different than reading reviews. You know, um, I guess I'm able to take it with. Uh, I don't know. I I, I I I I do enjoy doing it. I do enjoy live tweeting. I do enjoy seeing how the show impacts folks in real time. You know, um, getting to see folks being like, "Oh my goodness!" Um, in the exorcism scene. Mm-hmm. That he calls out some of the names, right? Anarcha. Um, that these are some of the names of of women who were tortured in real life, enslaved right. women, um, black women who who, according you know, people people have have given have have worshipped practically, you know, this the quote unquote god uh, godfather or grandfather of gynecology. But this man tortured mm-hmm. enslaved women, black women, in order to develop some of the very techniques we currently use in gynecology. Um, and so to see in real time folks, you know, putting up on Twitter mm-hmm. article about that or talking about uh, Bobo, oh, this is actually going to be Emmett Till, or, you know, it was amazing. It was amazing to see how how art could actually inform and it could actually be a history lesson as well. Um, I, yeah, I, I really, really enjoy engaging with, with folks in real time in that way. And I mean, I, m- I imagine you were also watching the show as you were doing that. So do you feel like watching your own work gives you different perspective? Was that like, was there a specific scene or a moment where, you know, when you were doing it, you had one feeling about it, but then watching it, you saw different shades, different layers. Oh, yeah. You know, I am one of those weird people that don't like watching. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I do. I'll watch it like once. Okay. Like kind of peek my head above, <laughs> you know, and just see it. But um it's another thing D had told me is don't watch your work. He was like, you know, and, and it's true. You're like looking at the bumps, you're looking at you know, the <laughs> this thing, you're looking at everything, but what you should be. Um, but I think I have gotten to a point where I'm able to actually um, watch it with a little bit of a less critical eye, but no, no, I'm lying. That's <laughs> okay. I'm very critical of it. Of my work. I'm very hard on it. Rarely satisfied. Um, but I, I definitely moments, it's interesting. I watched the episode two at the end when uncle George passes away mm. and Atticus and Letty ha- do that walk to the car. Mm-hmm. And I remember shooting that and all it took was me looking at Michael, looking at Montrose, 
in the car holding his brother. It, it was, it was, we did it. We had to do it a few takes. Um, we lost the light. We had to come back the next day and shoot it again. But every single time I looked at Michael, it hit me in the same way. And when I watched it again, it hit me in the same way. I was wow. just years. I can't watch that scene mm-hmm. without it absolutely destroying me. I think we all, it's interesting, me, Jonathan, and Michael all relate to the truth of that scene yeah. at a profound level. Um, even after we shot it, I just remember all three of us, Courtney was so beautiful. He was so amazing. He rose from the dead. <laughs> and the three of us could not stop crying. We mm-hmm. couldn't stop crying after. It was like minutes had passed. And Uncle George just comforted all of us. Um, but it's, yeah, so there are moments for sure that I, I watch it. It actually re-stimulates the same emotion okay. in an odd way. No, I mean, it's, it's interesting to hear you talk about it because obviously those are the, these are the scenes that are so emotional for us. You got, we all know that you're just acting, but your body doesn't know you're acting. So like, it makes sense to hear you say like, you, you know, you couldn't stop, you couldn't shut it down. Well, also for me, the only way I can achieve that is to, oddly enough, not act. Mm-hmm. Like, is to actually go to, it's like, it's almost like you, it's like a self-hypnosis. <laughs> like to actually go to what that spirit is feeling and to connect on a right. spiritual level. Um, and, and. And so that's why when I re-experience it, you're right. My body is experiencing the same thing that triggered right. all the other uh, stuff. And so it's, it's, it's strange. It's something I remember talking with Jonathan about. He, he says all the time about, we started this uh, ritual on set because the show was so heavy at mo- in moments. Mm-hmm. Um, there were light moments, of course. Of the course, love- yeah. You know, the, the singing, the music. And, I mean, I and, would even argue like some of her, you know, her bashing the car is a lighter moment because you're, you're taking out your rage and there's some wish fulfillment there. I mean, it's a, definitely a cathartic moment. That, that's a better word. <laughs> it's definitely violating, you know, but it, it's there. It, I love that scene so much. We did it in, in like two takes because we couldn't break. We oh, have, man. That's, the, that's the thing I'd want to do all day. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> That and maybe like walking through fire. I feel like I'd also want to do all day. That just looks fun. Absolutely. You know, I think it was important for us to, that's just the truth of life. You know, people experience very hard times, but also we're, we're survivors. And so we, we also triumph. We also make love recklessly. We also, you know, we experience all those things. Um, but one of the things I remember talking with Jonathan, we started this ritual of praying every day mm. together or we would go into the scenes and he would, he, I remember one time him talking about how essentially we're asking our hearts to break um, some of these times, you know, and you just pray that the Holy spirit at the end of the day, when it, when you got to go back home, that the Holy spirit can put your heart back together. It don't always happen, you know, and that's just, uh, that's just part of the job. That's just part of the work. Yeah. 
Um, I have to ask, I mean, we're talking about this show, season two conversations that you've had. What, what can you update us on while you're here in terms of if you're in those conversations and, you know, what you would potentially want for your character next season? Even, you know, even let's say these conversations haven't happened yet. What is your dream for her? Oh man, it's, it's, uh, I, I don't really tend to step into the world of the future of the characters because, you know, you could risk, I'm not the writer, first of all, so I could. Right. No, this is all hypothetical, like what you would want to play, really. Um, listen, I love Letty so much. She's, she has been one of the, I mean, it's a dream to play her, you know, and, and all the colors and complexities and. Um, I of course would love there to be a season two. I would, I would love, we became like a, a family, you know, and yeah. I would love to be able to play again with, with my, with my team, with my crew. And I would love to be able to step into Letty's shoes again. Um, I wish it were just up to me though. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I have been told that we, the parties that we want it to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. So I yeah. At this point, I'm like, I will accept and surrender to whatever destiny is in store for these characters. Okay, it's probably a healthy attitude. I mean... Yeah, I mean, listen, if COVID has taught me nothing, it has taught me that you cannot get attached to certain plans, okay? okay. You make plans and God laughs. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and you know what? You're right. Like, we're still in COVID. So, like, realistically, you probably have to wait until we're in a slightly better place to even make this show because I don't know given some of the protocols you know if the the scope of this show would still work the same way I know I wondered the same thing I don't know I I don't know I got no answer no I know that wasn't really I was just going and shoot something and I I shot something in Australia the Netflix film with Chris Hemsworth Mm -hmm. and Teller and Australia doesn't have COVID, essentially, or certainly not to the degree that we have it. And so we followed the protocols, but it was still a more, it was a way smaller cast and more intimate. And the same thing with the film, I'm going to do another Netflix movie. (laughs) (laughs) It is, you know, it's Alice and Janney. And it's, it's, again, we can contain it way more. So you make a good point. I don't know what a Lovecraft country in COVID Right. But you know what? It's okay because you're giving us these other shows to look forward to, or these films rather, to look forward to until we get to season two. So that's mm-hmm. good. You know, it's, it's always good that you're still working, that I can still write about things. So we're happy to see whatever comes next. Thank you for that. I feel blessed to be able to create art and stay curious and imaginative. And, yeah. um, you know, it's, Artists have to create. And and one thing I've learned, I've done this my entire life. So I've learned to not ask permission to create, but it's also nice to be able to create with other creators and and have your your creation seen. That's Journey Smollett, star of HBO's Lovecraft Country. 
And after the break, In and of Itself star Derek Delgadio spills the secrets on how he pulled off the illusions in his critically acclaimed stage show. Okay, not really, but he does have a lot to say about the special that wowed plenty of viewers on Hulu earlier this year. From Los Angeles, this is Variety's Award Circuit Podcast. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. And we're back. It's the Award Circuit Podcast. I'm Michael Schneider. In and of itself, written by and starring Derek Delgadio and directed by Frank Oz, first premiered in Los Angeles in 2016. It then moved to the Daryl Roth Theater in New York, where it played from 2017 to 2018. It ended after a 72-week run in 560 shows. The autobiographical show features Delgadio on stage, telling the story of how an encounter with a man who called himself the Rulatista led him on a quest to discover his own identity and what that even means. Along the way, Delgadio's skills in card tricks and illusion are utilized to tell this deeper, more personal story, which involves several surprising interactions with the audience along the way. Since premiering on Hulu earlier this year, even more audiences who didn't get a chance to see it in person had an opportunity to be wowed on screen. I recently spoke with Delgadio about the process of turning in and of itself into a film, how Stephen Colbert got involved in the TV production, and the balance between showing celebrities in the audience versus regular people. Plus, did he ever get worried that he wouldn't get that book back? We began by talking about the reactions to the Hulu debut. Most people didn't know what to expect and didn't didn't know anything really going into it and uh, have been pleasantly surprised uh, by what they found. And uh, it's been great to, to have people um, respond to it positively and, ha- and to know that it's resonating, you know, uh, with so many folks. So in talking to you, do you find this a lot uh, with with interviewers like myself that we're a little nervous, that we're kind of not sure what to expect from you, how to sort of approach talking to you? What's, what's. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, I don't know. I, I've, it's, it's kind of a first for me talking to so many people about my work. So I don't really have any uh, basis of comparison and people seem to be trying to understand what they saw and what I am. And, and, uh, and that seemed, yeah, I would say that's accurate. Well, to have both in and of itself come out and then your book, A Moral Man, come out right after, like one at a time, uh, is that just sort of serendipity that this all happened at once? This is real. This is a moment for you. Talk, talk about that and how everything sort of has led up to now these past, say, six months of the show coming out, the book coming out, and, and really, you know, nonstop coverage of, of you and, and your work now uh, out there. What's, how did this sort of all come, come about? Uh, yeah, in a sense, I guess it's, um, it's luck as far as the timing goes. Uh, right, after I, um, right after I finished performing in and of itself, 
I went straight into the edit of it and, and spent a year working on that. And then as soon as that was done, I started writing the book and it, uh, it took a while for the film to reach, uh, to reach the public it took a year or so after it was finished for it to actually come out. And so it's just kind of luck, I guess that, that we are not luck. Certainly not luck. Uh, uh, certainly, the, you know, the, the world had something to do with the, the timing of things in terms of delaying the release of the film so that the two came out together. Yeah. But nonetheless, yeah, it kind of, uh, it, uh, yeah, what, maybe luck's not the right word, luck's but at the, the right same word. time, the, the timing, I mean, there, there's so much that we can also attach to, you know, having something like this at that moment in time. Um, you know, we're, we're all sort of looking for something given what's going on in the world. And, and this was, yeah, I, I, yeah. Who knows, who knows, you know, what, how different things would be, uh, if the film were released under normal circumstances, I'm not, I'm not sure, you know, if, if if as many people would have seen it or if more people would have seen it, I I honestly don't know, but it is, uh, you know, I'm glad that both things are out. Uh, I have done a, a decent job making sure that I've remained hidden for many years. And now uh, I guess that's that's no longer the case. Why? Why? Why did you sort of you know, want to stay hidden for so long? And, and you know, I, I think the impact was even greater because out of the blue, everyone is like, where'd this guy come from? But but what was sort of the decision behind you know, sort of staying under the radar? Um, I, I don't think overexposure is good for the type of work that I used to do, uh, in terms of, of, I like the element of, of under, you know, under, under promise over deliver. And so it, it, you know, it was nice that people didn't know who I was and might come see me perform and, and be pleasantly surprised by what they found sort of like the way they are now. Uh, but, um, but at a certain, but it's limiting obviously in, the audiences you can reach and how many people can can be exposed to your work. And so yeah. uh, it felt like it was time for me to reach a broader audience. Do you miss that anonymity? Are you, uh, have you gotten used yet to all this attention or is, is this still been a little bit of an adjustment? Uh, it's an adjustment to, to put yourself out there and, and, you know, it's, there's a lot of vulnerability involved, a lot of, um, uncertainty and and so yeah there is a bit of an adjustment but it also just changes my relationship with uh the work and with the people in terms of how i how i approach things and and um yeah it's 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 just a a process so what made you want to do the book uh you know very personal i mean in and of itself is very personal as well so so you're you know really not only sort of you know becoming much more of a public figure, but also uh, you know really sharing a lot of, of your personal story, which you know that's that's also got to got to be sort of an adjustment for you. Uh, yeah, the book came from sitting around watching you know what what's happening in the world, and I felt like there's a there's something I could maybe contribute in terms. of of the dialogue of, 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 you know, fact versus fiction and truth. And, you know, there's a lot of talk of living in a pro a post-truth society and things like that. And, uh, I've had the 
well, I don't know if it's a privilege, but the experience that has allowed me to to see things that other people might not have seen. And, and I thought sharing that had some value in it. And if I could use my experience and um, in that way, I thought it might be beneficial and, and worth, you know, worth telling the story. Well, I know something, and I haven't had a chance to read the book yet. I can't wait to, to get my hands on on it. But but I know in in reading about you know some of the topics that you deal with, and some of the topics you also deal with in, in and of itself is you know this this guilt that comes with deception. Mm-hmm. And when you look out at the world right now, you you look at certain politicians, you look at certain news organizations, and there doesn't seem to be any sort of uh, sort of self reflection or guilt. Yeah. And are, are we living in just a sociopathic society now? Yeah. Um, you know, what, uh, these are issues you've struggled with all your life. And to see so many people out there seem to not struggle at all with, with these issues. What, what do you make of that? Yeah, it's really disheartening. Um, and it's, it's, I mean, it's really the reason I wrote the book is because I've, I've seen, I've been on the other side of that. I've seen how these people operate. Uh, and how they, you know, have a way of, uh, of I don't know, re- removing themselves from their own humanity in a way that allows them to, 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 to function, uh, you know, to their own benefit. And, and also, they don't believe, they kind of don't believe there is such a thing as truth or that it's relevant and that, and and you know, for me, I I understand how they see it that way, uh, in terms of the, they 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 believe they're able to craft their own truths, and and they're not wrong in a sense. And so, yeah, it's it's tough to watch, especially when it's so public and and so broad. And I just, um, yeah, I thought writing about it is is you know the best way to start you know, dipping my toe into that, that discourse. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I assume it was a, a therapeutic as well. I mean, all, all of this that you do, is it pretty therapeutic or? I don't think so. No. Uh, it, um, I don't, I, I don't actually uh, write, writing about myself or talking about myself isn't really um, the point, I guess. It's just part of it. It's an access. It's a way to access the ideas and uh, to talk about these things in the abstract or in a very clinical way isn't very um, appealing, I guess, to me, at least. Um, I'm not interested in doing like a TED talk or anything like that or writing a, you know, a Malcolm Gladwell book on deception. Uh, I'm, I'm interested in poetics and I'm interested in storytelling and, uh, you know, using a human story. And a narrative like that, for me, is a clear way of communicating these thoughts and ideas. And, you know, they say, write what you know. And, you know, I guess that's, you know, I know my life as well as I know anything. And so that's where that was a starting point, I guess, for, yeah. for me. And, and not but not not for, for therapy reasons, just for you got to give them something to hold on to and give them a piece of yourself so they understand what it is you're after. And and that's so much of I think why in and of itself uh, you know sort of affected people the, the way it did, uh, especially folks who didn't know, you know maybe they were told this was a special with with you know illusions and, and tricks et cetera. But yeah. I think it's the 
the, the, the storytelling that sort of grabs them in particular. Uh, what was that process? Run me through the process of creating this show. Uh, you know, how many years did it take to sort of, uh, you know, really sort of, you know, nail what you wanted to do with, with this project? Sure. It was uh, one year uh, from the time I started writing to the first performance that I did in Los Angeles. And then it took uh, several months performing it in LA and then a few months of refining it to, to then bring it to New York. And uh, it wasn't until New York that really uh, I felt like it started to hit, hit its stride in that, I, you know, before that I felt like I was building a bicycle while riding it. It was very difficult. Um, but the process was, was, you know, was idea driven. Um, I, I had these ideas about identity, uh, that I wanted to convey and, you know, had this, you know, it was like a constellation of ideas on a wall that I somehow had to bring together and give a shape to. And, um, and that shape was six chambers that, uh, that I, I then applied a, a narrative to each one that would illustrate that idea and punctuate it usually with some sort of um, moment of mystery uh, that would kind of um, allow people to both for, forget the things they knew for a moment and, it, and perhaps accept, accept some of the things that I was proposing in that space of unknowingness. Um, and then, uh, yeah, and then, you know, discussions with Frank, the director, uh, tying all of this together in a way that was um, making it cohesive, even though there wasn't really a linear narrative to tie it together. Um, had to had to figure out a way to emotionally tie it together and create sort of an invisible thread that people could follow, uh, even if they didn't know they were following it. So by the end of it, it felt like they had a, a complete experience and not just, um, you know, experience several vignettes that have been loosely uh, strung together. It should feel like they've experienced one story uh, despite not having the, the verbal narrative to go with it. Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned Frank, Frank Oz, uh, legend in storytelling. Um, yeah. How did you two hook up and, and what were some of his early sort of notes for you? We, uh, we knew each other before he directed the show, we met through a mutual friend. Frank saw me perform, introduced himself after the show, and we just kind of hit it off and became pals. Um, I asked him to direct, and uh, he didn't agree right away. So I flew out to New York and and pitched him basically what I was thinking. And uh, after that, he thought he had something to contribute, and so he, he agreed. Um, and really the process was, you know, keeping me honest. He wanted to uh, know what I wanted to achieve with this. And, and I, I made that very clear early on. And then he never let me forget uh, about what I was trying to do. And it was really about, uh, you know, he, he really wanted to make sure that it felt like one piece of theater and not just uh several ideas strung together. That was really uh, what I wanted him to do and help with. And, and that was really what he focused on was this, this, you know, in this river that flows beneath the work that, that has to be there at all times, uh, even if no one can see it. Um, 
And so he really focused on that element and making sure that it felt cohesive um, throughout and that it all made internal sense, even if the external logic wasn't there. Um, so he, he uh, there was a lot of, there was a lot of him saying, this doesn't make sense to me. A lot of, I don't, I don't, I don't get that. I don't, I don't get that. He didn't really offer, he's very Socratic in his method. He's, he didn't really offer, you know, uh, answers to things. He just had a lot of questions for me. What were those, those early audiences like, uh, you know, maybe, you know, going back to Los Angeles at the very beginning in, in, you know, before people knew that at least they were going to see something special, even if they didn't know what it was, uh, in, in sort of getting these early audiences to, you know, buy in and, and participate and, and sort of be a part of the show the way you wanted them to. Uh, the early audiences didn't know what to think. It was, it was very unconventional. Uh, I think they just thought what they saw was unique, you know, um, uh, some, uh, someone described it once as a spaceship. Um, and they said, this thing is just a spaceship. I don't know what this is. And so, um, it was, it was unique because before, if you've seen the, if you've seen the show, uh, there's like the book, the book element where it comes back yeah. night after night. But when that started, it was a blank journal. Um, you know, it was, I have a journal here and I'm, you know, page one is blank and I'm, I need someone to come back. And, and so it, it didn't have the, uh, obviously the history, uh, and the object, the, the, the fact that it was a magical object, it didn't exist yet. So, uh, it was very, felt very experimental in what it was. And it wasn't until the audience started to realize or, or contribute and, and make it what it became that it really solidified into what it now, you know, we have a record of. Yeah. But it was, it felt very experimental at first and people didn't really know what the hell it was. <laughs> where, where is that journal, by the way? That's here. And I have it. Have you, I, I'm sure you get asked all the time, like, is there a way to do it, turn it into a, a book to, to actually like have a, a, a deal where people can buy it? It's, I mean, it's very, very large. I mean, I think even if we were to, to create a facsimile of it, I, I don't think we could do all of it. Just the sheer volume of it is so big. Um, and there's so much in it. It's so uh, tactile. And, uh, you know, there's, there's, you know, you know, tokens glued into it. And there's a pop-up book built into it. There's... Um, uh, you know, Braille, there's uh, music. I mean, it's just so, there's so many elements. Uh, it, it's really more of an object than a book. It's it's almost illegible in terms of like, it doesn't, it's, it's because one page might be a beautifully written story, but the next page might be uh, written in code that you have to somehow decipher uh, or someone wrote wrote it entirely backwards. And so you have to hold it up to a mirror to, to be able to even read it um, or it's a photo collage and there's no words at all. So it's really uh, not a book that you read um, so much as it is just a beautiful object that you can look at and it, uh, reproducing it would be a tremendous challenge. And you mentioned that you never worried about it not returning. There was, there was never, never a time where it sort of disappeared. Well, no, I always worried, but yeah. I always believed it would come back. I always believed it would come back, but, um, but no, the, the, the perform the artist in me always believed that, but the performer, the guy who had to go out on stage 
you know, I didn't, the cur- I had to stand there behind the curtain waiting to go out, not knowing if the book had arrived. And that was really, you know, I have to deal with that soon. So like, that's yeah. a, that's a something you're obviously going to worry about until you realize they're back. What, uh, what, what do people sort of bring up the most? Is it the, the letters is what, when people, you know, ask you about the show, what, what do they ask you about the most? Uh, the, the last, you know, the last 15, 20 minutes, you know, the letters, the I am sequence, uh, at the very end, those are the things that people really, um, want to know about, but I think that's because there's, they're the most affecting and they're the most effective in a way. And, um, and they're magical, you know, they're, they're impossible things that happen, but in a context that's really meaningful. And that's, I think, you know, that's a twofer, which doesn't, it's very rare. I mean, I, and you probably hear this a lot too. The, the moment I lost it was when you say, how do you mom? When, when it's uh, in the audience. And yeah, that's a good yeah, moment. That's a pretty, pretty incredible moment. Uh, and, and you talk obviously a lot about her um, in, in the special and, and I believe in the book as well. Uh, what has her reaction been to this, this, you know, now, now that you're, very much in the public and, and her story is very much in the public. How is she sort of uh, uh, reacting to all of this? Um, she's very proud and very um, uh, happy, I think, with the result. I think she, um, you know, she's she's been there for all of it and, and watched me grow up. And so she she knows it's, I think it's nice for her to see all of the components come together, the, the components of who I am come together in a meaningful way. Um, and that I'm not, uh, I'm using both the, the, the skill sets or that I've acquired over the years and um, the, the, the hurdles and challenges I've had throughout my life. I'm using all of them in a way to, to make something that, that, um, you know, is so affecting for people and, and, and now meaningful to others. And I think that that is something she's really proud of. Yeah. Um, and, and is she, uh, you know, we, we know a lot about her as well. Was, was she, uh, you know, what was her reaction to having, you know, so much of her story being told? Um, I, I called her, um, uh, and read her, uh, the script, the part that is mostly about her. Um, and I kind of asked her, like I said, like, hey, I've written this and I want to make sure that um, you're okay with it. And I read, I read it to her and um, she, she only had one note, which was that the way that I had written it, it sounded like she was perhaps ashamed of who she was. And, uh, that was never the case. She was never in the, she was, once she realized she was gay, she came out of the closet and never looked back and didn't really hide it from anyone. Um, but she did, but she knew it affected me. And so, so I was protective over it and she wanted me to make sure that she never sounded ashamed of who she was. And so I, I, um, I, I adjusted the script to make sure it reflected that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, 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 
experiences that you went through and and she went through and you went through together and and her as a, a single mom i mean it's I, I know you've uh, you know talked about this a lot, but but it is just an incredible story, and she does sound like an incredible woman. So yeah, she's great. Um, I know uh, I I saw you quoted way in the past before, like years before this was uh, in and of itself came out, uh, and and in regards, uh, I think it was in a New York Times article about uh, you know uh, theft of ideas and. Uh, you know, folks out there trying to reveal secrets and and uh, trying to expose, um, you know, performances and illusions. And and again, I I'm trying hard not to use the M word. I, I know, like, That's fine. That's fine. I, I, I don't know if you call it magic. I don't know if you call it illusions. What you call it these days, or or what's what's your preferred term? In, in, I, in terms of- I don't really. Ha- I I let people decide for themselves. I, it's it's fine. Magic illusions. You, you know, whichever. Yeah. Uh, but do you, uh, are, are there many people you think out there who know exactly how you do these things? And uh, uh, is is there ever sort of a, a concern that someone may try to sort of, you know, take the, the, the magic out of it and, and, you know, sort of reveal the illusion? Um, what's sort of your thoughts on on you know people who are trying to kind of destroy the the magic of it yeah i mean there will always be people who who value the how you know more and and feel that by sharing that somehow um they're doing a service uh but uh yeah to answer your question i'm not sure how many um i mean i i know that the the part of the reason that the show was effective was that, that no one really knew how things worked. Even people, um, in my profession, they, they might get parts of it, but you know, no one could watch it and understand how all of it works because they'd never seen anything like it. Um, and so, um, it was built that way. It was built with my friends in mind. I, I, I wanted to make sure that they had the same experience. It's kind of an all or nothing for me in terms of you either, you either reach that place of, of astonishment or you don't. And that has to include, you know, everyone in the room. And so, um, it's a, it's a high bar. Uh, and, and I think that people who, uh, inevitably try to replicate it will find that that's true. Um, that it's, that it's, um, you know, good luck, but, uh, uh, yeah, I, it's, it's part of it. You know, I, I just, I have to, kind of detached from it in a sense, because I can't, it's too, it's too painful otherwise to think that there's someone out there actively trying to, to burn your paintings, which is what it would feel like. Yeah. And I wonder sort of uh, as, you know, part of that question too, when, when you're dealing with audiences, I mean, you do, you did a lot of shows. Um, So I imagine there must've been at least a couple of times where you have audience members who just want to be a jackass who, who, want to try to, you know, poke holes or, or ruin it for everyone or, or heckle. I don't know if you get heckling, but yeah, was that, I mean, did that ever come up or or if something like that does come up, you have an audience member who just, you know, wants to poke holes in in things. How do you deal with that? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I was, um, heckling was rare. 
Uh, it happened a couple times. Uh, I got pleasantly heckled by Drew Barrymore. That was fun. Um, uh, she's she's lovely, but it was just it was uh, you know not. I, I quickly realized that it was going to get out of hand if I if I let it go any further. Um, but uh, no, I mean you know the community of people who know about these things, like the magicians and, and things like that, they have a tremendous amount of uh, respect for, for the show. And, and it kind of starts at the top really. So like, you know, I've had uh, uh, all, all, you know, Ricky Jay, David Blaine, Darren Brown, you know, um, Penn and Teller, David Copperfield, uh, uh, all, all of them, Matt King, Max Maven, Michael Weber, every, every magician I can think of that I, that I've respected over the years has come to the show and, and really liked what they saw and, and praised it publicly and have said nice things privately. And so everyone kind of has a, a respect for it that, that makes, it makes anyone who might try to ruin it. Um, they, they, uh, they have respect for even if they don't respect me, they respect those people, and they know that to to try to um, ruin it in a sense, it would be disrespectful uh, to the larger picture, not just not just me, but to kind of the ideas that are being presented. And so, people have been really, um, for the most part, have been really respectful. And anytime someone hasn't, it's it looks worse on them than it does on me. So people people have really behaved themselves and and i was very fortunate that i didn't have anyone really disrupt uh if anyone disrupted the performance it wasn't ever related to to the magical elements it was always like people trying to just be jackasses like <laughs> i was gonna ask you about the the, the smart ass element of it you yeah know? yeah it was it was just someone like you know either bored trying to trying to make the show more entertaining for themselves or or trying to gain in- attention or they were drunk or, or things like that but it was never it was never related to the magical elements. It was always just someone being a jackass. Yeah. So you mentioned Drew Barrymore. Obviously, you know, one thing that we notice in watching in and of itself is it, it's kind of fun to, to see every once in a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, uh, especially W. Kamau Bell. He's a big guy. Yeah. So yeah. You, you, you immediately see, yeah. you see him there. He's like, oh, wow, that's that's cool. It's it, it uh, and. and Bill Gates and, and, uh, you know, that's sort of part of the fun of that. Is that distracting at all though, to, to have those folks in the audience or, or you managed to kind of just ignore it? No. Yeah. I ignore it. Um, that it, it can be, it changes the room. Certainly if they, if people know, depending on how famous someone is. Um, but it also, it also can be, it can elevate it. You know, people feel the sense of excitement of like, Oh, they're, they're here. Therefore this must be, good or special um you know i steven sondheim was in the room once and and you know in a broadway show in a broadway house or, or an off-broadway house of 150 people and one of those people is steven sondheim you know it's like when people know that it's it, there's an electricity in the air you know for a new york crowd that's very exciting um and makes the event feel more uh, alive in a sense um, but no, I, it doesn't, um, uh, so, sometimes I wonder if it, 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 if it affects it, um, it, it, you know, if there's a detriment there because you don't want to draw attention away from what the work is actually about. We actually had this in the film where 
we we tried doing an edit where there were a lot of celebrities in the house because we had footage of them and and um it's a film that we had to you know try to sell <laughs> and and right. and and uh, like well you know maybe if there's celebrities in it it's more interesting to people and we put uh we watched it after we cut it together and it was just such a um betrayal of the of what the work was about because you, you you know it makes it all of a sudden about that and and you focus on these celebrity figures rather than uh it being about identity so um uh you know i there we're very very careful with uh who we included why and when we included them um because i do feel like it's important to also have this um you know there, there is value in seeing how you know how Bill Gates sees himself, you know, and, 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 uh, but also not giving him any more time than you'd give anyone else. And, you know, moving right along that you may pass him or Marina Abramovich is the lady I, I whispered to and, and, um, and seeing, uh, Ronan Farrow and John Lovett in the audience or seeing, um, uh, Kamal or, um, uh, Dore McKesson, you know, it's not, it's, it's, it's setting a, a context for when the work was performed and in what, you know, a hundred years from now, if someone were to, to watch this, they would understand what time we're living through just based on seeing some of those faces. Um, it, it, it puts the work into, I think, an important context because I believe the time we're living in is, is an important moment in history. And I think that by dragging a little bit of the outside world into the theater, and pointing to it, um, it is perhaps not important right now, but I believe it is in the long run uh, for giving context to the work. I imagine you had a lot of uh, returning guests, people who you probably recognize who had been to the show before. How often did they pick a different I am card? Um, you know, the believers chose the same one if they went in, uh, like Tim Gunn came several times and he always chose the same card. Um, which I actually really appreciate and respect that um, uh, because it's true for him and it's, and, and that sincerity and that um, uh, is, 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 means a lot to me to have someone approach the work with that sort of, it's not just some sort of, Oh, I'll be this one day and I'll be this another day. It's no, I, you know, re really appreciate when someone uh, is actively trying to be true to themselves and, participate in it in, in that sort of way with that sincerity. Um, but sometimes it was a simple fact of what the card they chose last time was gone. Uh, cause there's only one of each. Yeah. And so they're forced to decide who they are, you know, today in this, in this context. And, um, that's, you know, that's inevitable and really interesting because that's part of the not fun of it is not the right word, but part of it is that, you know, you don't always get the title you want. And if you, if, you know, if that, that position in this world is taken by someone else, what, what else are you, um, that you can also feel, you know, proud of or comfortable in, or what role do you think you can fill, even though it's not the one that you really had hoped to, to get. So the show's out, the book's out, what's next? What, uh, what, what would you like to do next, Eric? What's, what's sort of on your to do? Uh, is variety hiring? <laughs> Right. Um, we always we always could use some good help. I'm 
I'm, I'm, I'm figuring that out. You know, I just, um, uh, I'm filming a, a movie with, uh, Steven Soderbergh right now. Uh, that, so that, that's currently shooting that I'm, I'm in. Um, oh, what do what do you, uh, what are you playing there? I don't know. If, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. Yeah. I haven't actually talked, but I'm, it's a, one of the roles. It's an ensemble film. So this I'm, is acting. Have you, is, is this new for you or have you done yeah, much of acting? Or? It's new. This is new for me. Um, I've studied theater and things like that, but I, and uh, obviously I've spent, you know, I've been on thousands and thousands of stages in my life. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, a thing or two about performing, obviously. So, yeah, but, uh, but this is new and out of the blue. And, um, and so it's, uh, it was, you know, uh, a, a fork in the road that, that, that I didn't expect to take. Um, and so, uh, there's that, and I'm I'm writing a new thing that that you know hopefully we'll see the light of day eventually. Um, but yeah, I'm just trying to to you know like anyone else figure out what's next. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, you're you're reminding me of Ricky Jay. I mean, talk about sure. someone who was like such a great perf- actor as as yeah. well, and and really um, you know juggled all of those sides of him so well. Yeah, he he was Ricky was you know was a hero and, and, uh, uh, and it's, it's, it's cool to, to have that sort of connection with him, uh, even all these years later. Was uh, Soderbergh a, a fan of the show? Did he come and see in and of itself or? Uh, I don't know that he, I don't think he saw it live. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I'm pretty sure he, uh, no, he didn't see it live. He, he saw the film and for whatever reason was like, that's I'm that guy. Um, and so, they just called. Yeah. That's cool. Would you um, ever, have you been asked to resurrect in and of, of itself uh, again? Or, or do you feel once, once you close the door on, on something like that, can you ever go back to it? Uh, I, I mean, I, I've not been asked. I just, I mean, I've been asked if I would do it again, but um, I've, I've been not asked to do it again. Um, uh, no, I mean, I, 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 in my head, I closed the chapter. Um, and I, I don't know. I don't even know that you, you could do it again, just in terms of of people seeing it. Part of part of the joy of the experience is the joy that you have. Or joy is the right word, but going into something not knowing and just yeah. having that experience. Yeah, it, no, joy is absolutely the right word. Yeah, it's just it's over. It's I like overwhelming people. I like overwhelming them with with feelings and emotions and ideas and having them not know where it came from or how this could possibly exist. Um, and now it exists. And so like, there's a difference in going into something that you know is possible and you know, it exists and you've seen a version of it or you've seen it on film. Um, it changes it in a way that I don't, I don't know that I would be able to do it again the same way, at least because I, it's worked, you know, doing the show, not knowing if it would work was part of the, the experience, you know, part of, part of the, the, the fear of it, part of the uh, excitement of it. It was this crazy thing that just existed that no one knew about. And it's this little show, little off Broadway show that you just kind of have to go see. And now uh, I don't think it would feel like that if I were to do it again, because it would be, uh, it would just be different that it's that it already exists in the world. That's Derek Delgadio. In and of itself is now streaming on Hulu. 
And that's it for this edition of Variety's Award Circuit Podcast. Drew Griffith edited this episode, and Michael Schneider is the producer. Be sure to subscribe to the Award Circuit Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you download podcasts. Also, head on over to Variety.com and click on the Award Circuit tab to find the latest Emmy predictions and key races, as well as your daily fix of news, analysis, and reviews. For Danielle Terciano and Jazz Tanke, I'm Michael Schneider, and we'll see you on the circuit. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.